0: So hi Justin, what was your first computer?
1: Hi there, Adam. Um, my first computer. Uh, I was lucky enough to have an, an original Apple II oh. um, that, that I got. Uh, I don't know what year that would have been uh, eighty four or something like that. Oh, when I was so quite uh, young.
0: you're not you're not you know like out how to code a very young hotshot JavaScript developer. So um.
1: well, yeah, I like it think about me but you know
0: uh <laughs> apple 2 is not it's not like you know the m1 this is uh yeah but what you did with the machine
1: yeah um well let's see uh i did some animation stuff we had a little uh converter box that let us hook uh hook it up to our tv so we had color and i forget what the what the resolution was back then in hgr mode if i recall so i remember doing things like uh making, um, fireworks animations and the kind of screensavers that Windows used to have with yeah. the two lines uh moving around and leaving trails. Uh yeah, so you used to do stuff like that. And then uh eventually I got up to I wrote a word processor at one oh, point.
0: So 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 you didn't um, play any games. So you started seriously with this stuff?
1: Well I played games, but you know it was it was kind of hard to come by games back then, right? Like my older brother would get um you know floppy disks from wherever uh you know, we had a uh, Sea Dragon and Wizardry and stuff like that. Eventually, we got more published games. Actually, one fun fact is one of my first published games was um, Pinball Construction Set uh, by Bill Budge, who I ended up uh, sharing, you know, sitting really close to oh. at Google uh, in San Francisco. And so I got to meet one of my childhood uh, uh, programming heroes and have lunch with him a bunch of stuff. So that was, yeah. that was really cool.
0: That is really incredible, something like this. So you, you started... So again, so if you got the computer, you started immediately gaming or immediately you know d- doing some something seriously with it so what you said is there were no games available, so you started so you were forced to do something more serious right
1: yeah um so my dad I, i'm a I'm a lucky kind of second generation okay. programmer um my dad's a, my dad's a programmer too um you know he wasn't trained in school i think when he was coming up you know uh they didn't really have a computer science degrees so uh he was kind of uh, self taught I think he started at Visa, and they needed people to program things there, and they just mm-hmm. didn't have enough people. It's like, hey, do you want to program? Sure. <laughs> um, so, you know, when we got the computer, yeah, there, there were a couple games around, but, you know, mostly it was like my dad was teaching we had to program. Uh, you know, I'm sure the very first thing I did was, like, you know, print, hello, on line 10, and line 20, go to line 10. And I was just like, ooh, I can make it do an infinite loop. Sweet. And, you know, from there, like, programming the computer itself kind of was the game for so, me, I guess.
0: You did uh, most of visual stuff. You said, you know, like, screensaver, stuff like that, right? uh yeah i mean that was the
1: most fun stuff i also remember trying to do uh those uh i forget what you call that category of games like bard's tale or whatever where it kind of like describes to you the room you're in and you take some oh. actions basically just like a huge if else mm-hmm. tree uh but i never had the patience to write that much content to make one of those so work
0: podcast with um a guy who yeah. he is um, now um, Java backend developer and it did similar game. And uh, what he did, he contract he contracted his sister, you know, to write the content, which was a genius. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, yeah. Okay. So, um, so the first, what you did. So, I mean, this is incredible. So you started with programming almost immediately and played a little bit, but you created, you know, the screensaver and now you try to to start at least with a game. And what happened then? So, what was your first more interesting app? You wrote, and which programming language? I assume BASIC, right?
1: Basic, Apple BASIC, yeah. Um, you know, my school had like Commodore, a Commodore mm-hmm. PET on a cart they could wheel into classes. But I was never really comfortable with the Commodore. Um, I don't know. I had a very interesting um, kind of relationship with computers coming up. Um, I was very, very lucky to be in a good school system that had um, or still has a famous uh, computer and science and math uh, magnet program. Um, so, uh, yeah, I remember one of the first more serious programs I run is I wrote a spell checker for a teacher because I had gotten detention and I kind of convinced my way out of it by saying that I could write this spell checker. And it was probably a very, very bad spell checker at the time. But then, you know, l- I got very lucky and I got into this magnet program uh, in Maryland right outside of D.C. And uh, they taught us, uh, you know, computer science fundamentals starting in seventh grade. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- from seventh grade through high school. Uh, You know, I had a large portion of like a college level computer science education. Um, And that was that was really amazing, actually. Um, And and then I went into a period where I thought, you know, I didn't want to follow in my dad's footsteps. I was Mm -hmm. kind of rebelling. So I actually didn't pursue computer science for a while. I did. I did music and art and uh, kind of moved out to California and was kind of avoiding that. But um, when I came out to California, the startup scene in the first dot com boom was so kind of intense at that point that uh, looking for a job out here with my background, it was like clearly the best job I could get was if I did uh, computer stuff. uh, You enjoyed
0: programming? Or was it you were forced by your parents, more or less?
1: Oh, no, I loved it. I took to it immediately. I just kind of, you know, had a late teens, early 20s rebellious streak Uh where, uh, you know, in in some ways, I thought the best thing I could do for the world was not be productive, right? Like producing producing art would have been... (laughs) would have been better for the world than like, you know, increasing, uh, you know, industrialist capitalist productivity. I guess I'm not really following that route anymore. But, you know, I thought it was kind of an ideological okay. rebellion. You know, I, I still love computers. Um, and I spent many hundreds of dollars on compilers just to have for my okay. own. But yeah, it was a, I was avoiding
0: the profession What kind of music while. you did, you created?
1: Um, I, I would say it's like jazz oh. funk, probably more on Guitar the folk side. Or, or what? Yeah. Uh, okay. keyboards. Uh, mostly electric, electric oh, piano yeah. and organ and stuff. So um, no. and now back to programming. Yeah. So,
0: which programming uh, languages you actually uh, programmed with? So you started with BASIC, then I, I guess assembly, and then.
1: Um. Actually, I never okay. did much assembly. I kind of went from uh, BASIC in grade school to like Pascal, um, in in high school, and I, I was programming on Max in school. I forget what language exactly we were using. Um, On my PC, I used uh, Turbo Pascal and then Turbo Turbo C. Um, Once I started working again, though, it was straight into Java. Java had um, just come out. Uh, And I was working for a company that made multimedia CD-ROM titles uh, for for industrial training and stuff like that, computer-based training. And they wanted to move online. And the only way you could do anything decent online then was with Java applets. So I, I was doing Java for a very, very long time. Uh, uh Until I did a few years of Python, who really really enjoyed Python and Django and that kind of that's when I got into the did web enjoyed java and then when I got to Google back i I do like java um i you know it has its areas that it's kind of uh you know has well known critiques for verbosity and stuff, but I always felt that that was a little bit more of a mm-hmm. choice on uh, the programmer than something required by the language. I haven't gotten to use Java in its more recent years with more concise uh, uh, Lambdas and type inference and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, so it's, pro- you know, I'm sure it's a lot better than I remember it.
0: But back then, so what I understood was you are, yeah. you're a fairly sophisticated programmer. So you, you were interested in compilers and then you saw Java. So if you know, you know other programming language, Java may appear too basic or whatever verbose. So what was your reaction to Java back then? You remember?
1: I mean, I I honestly wasn't that sophisticated (laughs) of a programmer. I just, I basically, you know, at that time, um, if you actually knew how to program, there was such demand for it. If you actually just knew how to program a little bit, right? So uh, I didn't, you know, know a lot about the difference between, say, type systems and, you know, interpreters versus compilers even, and just-in-time compilers and all that. I didn't really know about that. But, you know, I could follow the instructions to download Java and get started and write mm-hmm. a hello program and, you know, eventually get an applet working. And it was just more just kind of sticking with it and forging ahead and buying a book for anything I didn't mm-hmm. know. Um, and I don't know, I felt Java was uh, was pretty approachable at the time. I mean, certainly more so yeah. than C. <laughs> yeah,
0: and you um, started with Java one, 1 I assume, so, right? So Java one oh one one, something like that? One yeah,
1: one zero. I mean, I started before one zero was final. I remember there were some betas yeah, exactly. for a Exactly while. like me,
0: yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was. I have to admit, yeah. I was a little bit confused was- about the applets, so I never understood the purpose of applets. So I'm, um, so I, I started a little bit with applets and then moved to the server side and stick on the server from the beginning. But applets at the beginning, say, why we need applets, right? So this was one. Uh, but uh, yeah, you your background was more, you know, art and multimedia. Um, so this was more natural to start with applets. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, there was uh, no way to do interactivity, kind of client-side interactivity at the time. Um,
0: I think Microsoft's
1: DHTML, yeah. you know, hadn't even come out yet. I'm not sure if JavaScript, I kind of forget my timeline there. I do remember... Um, that was
0: LiveScript. It was almost at the same time. And the deal was that if... Uh, let's let's see. Uh, yeah. If uh, Netscape is allowed to rename LiveScript to JavaScript, then uh, Sun is going to be allowed to to ship, you know, applets with uh, Netscape. Something like this. This was the deal. So, um, yeah,
1: yeah, Microsoft, Microsoft called yeah, exactly. it JScript yeah, exactly. or something uh-huh. like that. I think. Was it? Yeah, and I remember the incompatibilities were were kind of insane. Like, um, so the the system I wrote was a multimedia authoring uh-huh. system in Java. So you would describe. Uh, it was actually a wild system. You would write. This training content in FrameMaker, okay. Adobe FrameMaker, and it had a format called Maker Interchange Format, where it would export all this stuff, and it was very much like SGML kind of stuff. And then we would translate that into a Java um, applet. Um, and so the system I wrote like wasn't an app; it was like an app making system itself. And and there would be crazy things like difference between Microsoft and Sun, where like the Z index ordering was like opposite. Like on one of them, a higher Z index was in front of, and the other one, the higher index Z, Z index mm-hmm. was in back of. So we'd have to do hacks like, okay, if we're on Microsoft, reverse okay. all the Z indexes. Um, and it was just a wild, yeah, like in, in Java, you can't, there's no monkey patch. Mm-hmm. There's no fixing this stuff. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. Um, As a problem so, in, the, in the J, J script <laughs> for Microsoft, there were even some APIs lacking. Like I remember, I think, RMI and JDBC. Yeah. Um, so what you did... After this, so you stick with the company for a long time, or how you transition to Python and why?
1: So this was a small startup that you know wasn't uh, wasn't very sophisticated on the business side, and uh, you know I had I was one of the early employees, and I had you know traded like salary for stock options, and you know that trade ended up not working out very well because being kind of unsophisticated on the business side, it became clear to me that they you know, they weren't um, going to have a good exit. Yeah. So eventually, yeah, eventually I left that company to uh-huh. play music. And then I kind of went into okay. a 10-year music and, and school uh, a hiatus. But um, during that time, I was doing consulting okay. to um, to pay the bills. And I had some friends uh, rave about this uh, new web framework uh-huh. called Django. This is when frameworks were all server-side, you know. Uh,
0: yeah, and I picked up Python, and I, I fell okay.
1: in love with Python. I thought the the syntax and the conciseness and the, the standard library were, Actually, were amazing.
0: Back then, there were battles wow. between Python and Rails, right? So I remember it was around 2006. You said it's at 10 years, so it should be in this uh, in this uh, uh, yeah year years. And uh, there were even, you know, online sessions like the DHH versus the Django guys, and they had you know pros and cons Rails versus Django. And uh, you ever did uh, Rails or you always stick with Django?
1: I you know, Django was really kind of um, like cured some skepticism I had about this purchase. because I had, I had looked at Rails and you know I know people love Ruby, Ruby um, but I just could not get over the yeah. syntax. And and I know I have a I think I have a more mature view of syntax now, which is I'm like you know you'll get used to any syntax if you use it wrong yeah. enough. Um, but uh, it's kind of the same problem I've had with like Haskell and other languages too, like lacking. Commas or optional things, and like, is something the name of a function or an argument to the function, and the at syntax, and just a whole bunch of stuff in there got me going. Like, I don't know, I, I just wasn't comfortable uh with Ruby. So when I saw Python, it was like, oh my god, this is what I wanted, you know. Um, and I thought Django's approach too, with their the the way they did uh views and meta models, like a lot of stuff just made sense for me. I thought that ORM was amazing. Um, so I I really fell in love with Django right still away. still popular, still around. Uh, I believe so. Um, you know, I think a lot of those frameworks had a little bit of a tough transition once things started going very heavily um, yeah. AJAX and client side rendering. Because um, you don't need as much of a server side yeah. framework that you need API mm-hmm. endpoints. Um, I haven't kept up with them, so I don't know how they've kind of evolved to fill that. To so fill what that need.
0: After ten years, you know, vacations. Um, you know, uh,
1: music went okay for a while. I was with a touring band, made a couple albums, uh, but, you know, even at that point we were playing instrumental funk jazz, you know, it's like, uh, kind of the party music, uh, not something that consistently pays the bills there. Um, so I had to get a job at a music store and I was working that for a while, just kind of questioning, like, what am I doing? And I decided to go back to school. And luckily, uh, I was living in Santa Cruz at the time, and um, UCSC has a really amazing computer science department. Uh, there's a great community college down there, Cabrillo College. So I went back to community college. Um, you know, I, I, I did well and got my guaranteed acceptance uh, program lined up to go to UCSC. So yeah, I was on the 14-year degree program. So I went back and got my degree. And then another very lucky coincidence for me, a friend there was good friends with a recruiter at Google. So I graduated, started doing consulting again, and then got a call from Google. Um, And and this was also at a time where Google was much smaller, and I think the mystique was larger. This would have been around uh, uh, 2008. And it was like, oh my God, Google's calling me? Like, of course I'm going to take that call. Of course I'm going to interview. Yeah, and I got a job at Google. How hard um, was the interview? Doing Java. It's hard to say. Like, I, I keep talking about how lucky I was. This is another case. Like, you know, because I was on... This unusual path where I went to school again later. You know, these interviews are a lot easier yeah, if you right. come directly. Yeah, all the out algorithms, data structures computer is what you data.
0: do all the time, right?
1: Yes, yes. Also, um, I had gone back into consulting a little bit right after I graduated. So my schedule was super flexible. And I took the, uh, the CLRS, the algorithms book, and I took two weeks and didn't do any contract work. And I studied the book and I wrote hash tables and red black trees and all this stuff from scratch and i kind of went in there um you know i was very confident i was ready to go and, and even then the very first question i got it, it's a banned question now um because it's because it's pretty well known but i basically froze for what felt like five minutes like the our my first interviewer was not like very welcoming or warm or didn't try to put me at ease he was just like okay here's a problem um you know, try to connect these concepts and just go. And I stood there at the board just going like, uh, and I thought i bombed it right away. I was like, there's no way I'm going to get hired. And eventually I kind of snapped out of it and I worked my way through the problem. In hindsight, I didn't get the best solution, but after actually asking that question in interviews, I realized I did okay. So, you know, they're, they're tough. I think there's a lot to be, uh, there's a lot to criticize in that kind of hiring process. But but you know I obviously made it through, and again I was lucky to uh, to yeah, have just come out of so. Two
0: weeks time and read the book. I mean, this is two weeks. It's it's a huge investment actually, right? I mean,
1: yeah. And again, I was really lucky to yeah. be able to do that. Not. Not a lot of people can do that if you're working already, um, especially if you're working and you have a family like I don't know how you carve um, you know I have a, a six-year- old now and like I, I don't know how I would re- replicate that if I needed yeah, to you, you could it would be very difficult. This. The
0: problem is only you know first the motivation then uh, what the, the, the gained knowledge has to make a, a sense you know if you learn just theoretical stuff which is not applic- applicable to your work I mean this is this is the hard part you know this is your know, two weeks of your life with without any benefit.
1: Yeah. Well, actually, another way I've been lucky is I have been able (laughs) to
0: use, um, you know, a lot of this knowledge in
1: my work. Um, You know, I I think uh, you see enough cases where uh, what you would think is a pretty pedestrian program, um, you know, easily has, uh, you know, polynomial or exponential traps in it. You know, even for, like, user interface stuff, front-end stuff, um, you know, you can easily do searches and queries and kind of operations that end up being uh, very expensive and cause bad user experiences. So, uh, you know, being able to use hash tables, being able to memoize things, uh, being able to do efficient searches and sorts, these are actually, have come up, you yeah. know, quite a bit. And and not getting stuck on those, being able to just, you know, pull out your knowledge and, and address the problem yeah. is really
0: useful. this is useful. I mean, if you, you know, if you learn data structure and algorithm is u- useful, there are less, you know, how to call it, uh theoretical knowledge which is uh, or there's a theoretical knowledge out there which is not particularly useful, more esoteric I would say but um, in my case what I learned a lot because I wanted to was around 1997 Java programming certification by some microsystems. The first one was really hard. This was multiple choice without knowing, you know, how many boxes are actually right. So <laughs> you had to really know. And there were no right. tricky right. syntax questions. And but this helped me as well because back then IDEs were really bad. So what I what I learned from that is I could look at right. the source code and, and, and immediately knew where the syntax errors are, you know, I, I almost worked like parser back then, but I did similar approach. I also learned from books and even, even longer, I think, than two weeks, but it paid off. So this is, to, but this was just for fun. I did it for fun because I wanted to. Um, I never needed actually the certification and um, yeah. So what you did you do at Google? So you started immediately with backend services or...
1: Um, well, I got hired into their corporate engineering okay. department. So they build all the H- HR and accounting, just all the kind of apps that the, um, the business needs to run. Um, I think they also had some responsibility for like corporate IT infrastructure, not the prod serving infrastructure. So it was a really kind of interesting organization that did a bunch of different stuff. Um, and the first thing I got hired onto there was actually working on a, um, a compensation planning system. Um, and, uh, there were some changes in offices there and, you know, essentially this, this compensation planning system kind of got, um, you know, given to me as a, as a new hire, as, as it was transitioning. And it was, uh, it was a trial by fire experience because the compensation planning cycle was coming up and I had this architecture I didn't know, uh, you know, languages I didn't quite know fully anymore. And, uh yeah it was it wasn't what I expected out of google at all um and it was very intense. I was actually kind of like um it was very eye opening like how yeah you know, I'd never worked in a big company before, so how all of this worked, how a project got funded and started and staffed and maintained was um uh, yeah it was a big shock to me um you know how that all worked and I actually pitched that they rewrite the the project and so I got to be involved in um kind of a, a I would say it's a classic corporate rewrite, except for it was pretty successful. We didn't we didn't take too long, and it wasn't too sprawling. Um, but from there, I was kind of astonished that they hired, um, you know, these very good Google-level, we all had to pass the same Google interviews. Um, you know, engineers are expensive, and they were hiring us to write the compensation planning thing, which was kind of a glorified spreadsheet. So from there, and this is my first taste of doing um, developer tools at Google, uh, I use my twenty percent time to start a project
0: called twenty oh, percent time' is a really real thing, not just you know uh uh-huh. it's a real thing and it still
1: is a real thing um you just have to you have to take okay. it you have to do it it's really uh nobody tells you you should take your twenty percent time um but yeah, I took it and I started this project because right before I joined Google, I was actually doing some filemaker uh-huh. consulting um, I knew a bunch of people who started small businesses and made these databases and kind of hit a wall with their knowledge of, of how they did the database, and I would come in and fix it for them. Uh, so I kind of actually was enamored with the power, the ease of use of FileMaker for like uh, non-programmers. So I, I started something very inspired by that, but um, based on the web and App Engine. Um, and I did that for a few years. Uh, that eventually launched as an external okay. project uh, called Google App Maker, and unfortunately it's shutting down this month. Uh, which, yeah, It's another uh, member of the Google graveyard, I guess. Um, But yeah, it was it was public for a couple of years. Um, It was used very heavily internally, also. Yeah, so that got me interested in in,
0: so Google. um, So what you could do with it?
1: So it's it's an application builder. I would say it it falls under the low code Mm -hmm. umbrella. Um, So there was a a drag and drop WYSIWYG UI builder. and then there was a data modeler where you could build up a schema. Um, you could also connect to a couple of other different database types. Uh, there was SQL and some internal databases. Um, and it had, uh, you know, one-click live preview and a one-click deploy. Okay. Um, and, yeah, it let, you know, tons of people, especially in HR in the area that Bench was working, um, to create their own applications very quickly. Um and there was another effort in Corp Engine too to create like a common corporate mm-hmm. database that had like all the information the company needed to run. Uh so once we supported that, you could basically start building um you know, your own HR apps like anybody could. So we just had the, the HR business people start making their own applications. Yeah.
0: This is truly uh, incredible. Yeah. So in the in your in your first job at Google or, or even with the uh, Google App Maker, which programming languages you, you used at Google back then?
1: It was entirely it was entirely Java, even on the client. So we used GWT, oh, okay. uh, Google Web, yeah, Google Web Toolkit. For those who don't know, um, yeah, I mean, and that was my introduction to Google style web programming, which turned out not to really be Google style because yeah. there were other Google styles out there. Um, and, you know, and it worked. I mean, it was a time right. when. With- um, you know, this- like is an interesting <laughs> word to apply to Google. I tried,
0: I tried to avoid that. It was also uh, very, um, I would say, popular outside Google. So some of my clients wanted to use GWT. But for me, it was, if this breaks, there is no. I have no chance to fix it. So I say, okay, then I, I cannot help you. <laughs> you know, this was like...
1: Yeah, I mean, when we hit... The, the big enticing thing about it was, you know, one, it, it brought power and structure to the web that JavaScript mm-hmm. didn't have at the time. Um, you know, in, in a prototype system, and you know, we felt more confident that our code was going to work. Um, the The other big thing was sharing code between the server and the client. Um, node did not exist yet. Um, I'm not sure Chrome had even come out, or maybe it had just come out. I mean, this was right around the time when V8 would have mm-hmm. even been uh, starting. So JavaScript, mm-hmm. you know, wasn't that fast. You wanted it optimizing the compiler. So it really enabled us to do some interesting stuff. We um, we were running JavaScript via Rhino uh-huh. on the server.
0: From Firefox. Uh,
1: uh-huh. Inside of Java. And that, yeah, that let us do some interesting things like wire together. We could expose you know, parts of our Java API um, into uh, the Rhino environment. Uh, we also built a real-time editing uh-huh. system, an operational transform system, so two people could edit the app at the same time. Um, and a lot of that was based on shared code between the client and server for representing how operations were made and applied to these documents. Um so it worked out pretty well. I think you know a few years after that, when um you know better frameworks came around for JavaScript and JavaScript advanced a little bit more, you could see that quit was more of a hindrance mm-hmm. than a help, uh, and it slowed things down. But at the time, I think it was a it was okay. a decent
0: choice. So what happened, or you stick with the Google app maker? Or
1: no I le- I left that after a few years um, you know um, I had a very kind of grand vision for that concept uh, and it was very difficult to get a grand vision okay. funded to the uh, extent that you feel it deserves and it's kind of your uh, your baby like that um, so you uh, get
0: everything funded yeah. at Google right so this is what uh, <laughs> so let's say <laughs>
1: Yeah, this is no, this is not how it goes. Um but I was enamored with making development better and easier uh and more accessible. Um and around this time, um the Dart programming language project started up at Google as well. Um and I knew people who knew people who were on that team and they the Dart team had done kind of a roadshow and done these hackathons and you know, we invite people to come in for two days and build some programs and uh Tell us what you think of the language and find bugs and whatnot, that kind of thing. And um, I had convinced uh, my AppMaker teammates to go with me and just real quick try to build the the simplest AppMaker clone okay. we could in Dart, because um, you know we were already feeling the kind of limitations of GWT mm-hmm. and the and how heavyweight it was. Um, and so at that point, I, I really kind of fell in love with Dart and I ended up uh, switching to the Dart team. For yeah, Dart a is years. actually a
0: nice language. Um, so I okay. saw Dart, you know, I, I, I used a little bit with Flutter. And, uh, and, uh, and mm-hmm. I, I always was interested in Dart. Um, and it looks nice. And uh, it was immediately understandable for me as Java developer, right?
1: Yeah, I kept telling people that, you know, it's about two thirds of the way between JavaScript okay. and Java, hmm.
0: but leaning more towards okay. JavaScript.
1: Um, yeah, so so that was really nice. I mean, I think I, at that time, I just from working with compiler developers and language designers, um, I learned a whole lot about programming languages. Um, that was really a great time there. And I, uh, you know, I wrote I wrote some more parsers. They were actually used as part of like Polymer Dart. Um, uh, I uh, got to do JavaScript interop, so learned all kinds of things about you know <laughs> the difficulties of translating. Mm-hmm. Uh, things between two program- programming languages, um, yeah. So that was really great, and I was there for about two years. Um, yeah, I worked on on Polymer Dart and JavaScript Interop. but that's where I got introduced to Web ah, Components. This okay. when I was on the was when I was on uh, the Dart team.
0: What I heard is that uh, I'm, with Dart, first respect to Dart um, at the beginning. So Google had their grand plans with Dart. So this should be you no know, D language, which should replace JavaScript, even right? So I heard some interviews to say, okay, this should you no know, evolve. And, and become the language, uh, was it their plan or what was the purpose at, at f- uh, using Dart at the beginning? you remember that, the, the, the gold back then?
1: Yeah, I mean, I wasn't part of, you know, the Dart, uh, kind of the, the initial project mm-hmm. starting, right? Um, but it was started by people who, um, you know, had implemented, you know, the fastest JavaScript uh, interpreters, uh, the VMs at the time. And, you know, I think it came out of a frustration of kind of the slowness of, of JavaScript's evolution at the time. Um, a lot of the perceived, um, you know, mistakes in JavaScript design that couldn't be fixed without a breaking change. And then also from the point of view of, um, you know, these VM uh, uh, authors who wanted a language that was easier to write a VM for. Um, so, yeah, they they did want to... Um, you know, integrate Dart into Chrome. Um, and there was a you know famously a version of Chrome that had the Dart okay. VM in there okay. called Dartium. You know, but, but Google is not a uniform place. I mean, you know, not everybody had that same aspiration or, or agreed with this. So there were different groups of people kind of working towards uh, different goals there. But it was uh, kind of a stated goal of integrating the Dart VM uh, into Chrome and making it, you know, play right alongside the JavaScript VM. Now, that, yeah, that definitely was an aspiration of some people. I you know, that I think has gone away now and in the in, in the, the approach now is to, you know, only compile Dart to mm-hmm. JavaScript and then I think a ton of the focus is on Flutter these days where they have yeah. more control.
0: Which is really nice. So after you manage to install it, it really works smoothly.
1: It works smoothly. Yeah, At the beginning, you know, <laughs> yeah, I can't I, believe, you know,
0: how much it takes. This is not the fault, you know, for Flutter, but you have to know, after you install the Xcode and everything, I think you will have to download, you know, five gigs of uh, of, of, of runtimes until you, you can ship. Yeah. Oh, oh
1: sorry. Oh, I, I left the Dart team right as Flutter mm-hmm. was starting up. So uh, I never really wrote any mm-hmm. Flutter code. Um, but I like the architecture yeah. of it.
0: it, it, it Works after it's installed. Works perfectly. So another question: What I heard is that uh, at Google, the um, Angular on Flutter is actually. Oh no, no, D- on Flutter on Dart is uh, fairly popular. So uh, Google uses internally a lot of uh, Angular Dart projects.
1: Yeah, I mean Google uses uses Dart a lot internally. Um, it's been a while. So we had we had Polymer Dart for a while. That's mm-hmm. what I worked on. Um, I don't think anybody is is using that anymore. So basically. There were these initial ideas that maybe we could find this kind of universal mm-hmm. system. I think it was very idealistic at the beginning, uh, and then from even those same set of people who thought, mm-hmm. you know, that they could do that, things diverged into a couple of different groups. Mm-hmm. So you have um, Angular Dart um, is very popular, especially in the um, the mm-hmm. Ads group, um, and then you have um, Angular uh, 2.0. I guess I always forget if Angular JS is the, JS thing, is the
0: old thing, whatever they call.
1: Okay, yeah. the Angular 2.0 and everything since then was kind of based on a lot of the ideas that were used for the original Angular, okay. part, actually. Uh, so you, then you have a bunch of people doing TypeScript and Angular. Um, you have a bunch of people doing uh, Polymer and LitElement web components. Um, and then probably even larger than all of those um, is an internal non-open source framework uh, that we have that a lot of what people What is people the
0: uses. name of the framework?
1: So there's what, a bunch... It's called Wit. Wiz. Mm-hmm. I believe that's mm-hmm. been talked about publicly. So Wiz yeah. is
0: the the most popular framework and then what what is the second one? Probably
1: Angular. I, I believe I have this right. Yeah. I mean there you know, there's a lot of it on yeah, yeah. Google <laughs> and things change quite often, yeah. Um so yeah, Wiz is a very, very interesting framework. It's kind of unlike uh mm-hmm. anything else. It's it's not it's almost not even a component based framework. It's it's very it's a very interesting framework in that like it kind of forces you into this um, server- side render, incremental hydration, incremental code loading thing. so um, you can basically have a team that's that's very large and you're almost guaranteed to have good loading performance um, because the framework doesn't let you load arbitrary JavaScript for the initial page okay. render. It's, like, against the rules. So it's, it's a fascinating thing. Um, you know, I think both the Angular team and the, the Polymer Lit team uh, definitely look towards Wiz as, like, you know, it'd be interesting to add those types of features um, uh, to it, our products. This
0: so. is, uh, W-I-Z. This is how it's... Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, interesting. So, but you uh, started at the uh, Polymer team. Uh, Was it the recent Polymer or the old one? So I think, you know, the uh, ES6-based or just what happens before? Yeah, so I
1: joined Polymer right before 1.0 went out. um, And I actually joined them hoping hoping to do a UI designer uh, for (laughs) web components. Uh, So I was kind of on the side doing this research project for that for a while. Um, So, yeah, that's when Polymer 1.0 came out, and it was based on the old web component specs, what we call V0. Uh, and it was based on mm-hmm. HTML imports uh, instead of JavaScript modules. Um, JavaScript modules weren't even mm-hmm. a thing yet mm-hmm. when, when we did that. Uh, yeah. So then I, I I did tools over there, and and um, after you know being part of tools, the the whole our big push there was to try to not have mm-hmm. to do tools. You know, just do only what was necessary, and mainly those those things were necessary because of mm-hmm. HTML imports. Like no other tools knew how to understand. Uh, uh, an app being built out of uh, multiple HTML files like that. Um, but as the other browsers and Google collaborated on the new version of the Web Component spec and it was clear that HTML imports were not going to be included in that, uh, we helped with the transition from HTML imports to
0: JavaScript. What orders. is your take on that? So you like the imports better or you are happy with ES6 imports?
1: I, I'm i a little tore here. I, I'm the kind of person who wants to you know always try to have the best mm-hmm. of both worlds. Um, so I do think having a single module graph, a single dependency graph, um, is very important for uh, developers, for, for the platform, and for tooling. Um, so, you know, once it was clear that the, the module systems were slightly different between HTML imports and JavaScript modules, uh, it seemed way better to go all in on JavaScript modules and then start expanding the type of modules you could load in the JavaScript module graph. Um, And so that's where there's a new proposal out called HTML modules, which lets you import HTML from JavaScript. Um, And before we even get there, there's two that are making really good progress right now. There's JSON modules and CSS modules. And uh, I'm particular, I I think I started the CSS module proposal. I'm a huge fan of it, obviously. And I think it's really important because the thing you want out of your dependency graph is you want every module to be able to describe its actual dependencies, the things it needs to load and run, not just the JavaScript. Yes. ones. Um, so once we have CSS modules, you'll be able to say, if I load this component, I'm going to get it CSS. Uh, and that's just going to work in a standard way. The browser can do it without tools, or tools can understand the dependency graph and
0: optimize it as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. So in my current project, with no. uh, I use a lit uh, without HTML, just the, uh, uh, not, I mean, lit HTML without the element is what I wanted to say. And uh, so my components uh, look like almost Java classes and what's lacking, of course, is the CSS dependency, right? So you have two choices. You will have to load, you know, the CSS as a style tag from somewhere inside into the shadow dome or you skip the shadow dome and, and, and define everything with a BAM syntax or something on, on, on top. So this is the choices Right now, it would be nice to have you know the, um, be able to load CSS stuff, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, and what we're hoping is that people get to structure their components the the way they're laid out in multiple files or not, like you know, according to their preferences. Mm-hmm. Um, so some people really like you know, Lit, Lit Element has this uh, template tag mm-hmm. for CSS. So you write CSS backticks right in your component. You write HTML backticks mm-hmm. for your template, mm-hmm. and it's a single file component, but it's all in JavaScript. And it doesn't require any tooling to build or load it. And a lot of people really like that. Um, On the other hand, there are a ton of people out there who want to write CSS in .css files um, and HTML templates in .html files. Um, So CSS modules and HTML modules would give them that ability. um, And that especially would help, I think, um, people be able to use other Mm -hmm. tools. So like, let's say you could use SAS to write your CSS. You compile that into standard CSS and load that via CSS modules or you use pug or something to write your html templates if you wanted to compile that into html and load that so you know hopefully everybody can have we can have the best of both worlds and everybody can choose the style okay.
0: that they want so you, you actually started lit <laughs> lit html or yes Why? i did yeah um and it, and it's
1: it's related to the javascript modules thing mm-hmm. actually so uh we wrote a translation tool to translate polymer2 files from html to javascript modules um And in Polymer 2, the template kind of was the container. And inside of your HTML, you would have a script tag. So HTML was the container, script was inside. So what the tool did is it inverted that, and now script was the container, and we had to put the HTML inside of it. And in Polymer 3, we just have that as a string that's given to your uh, class with a static property. Um, and inside that string, you have expressions. And these are just Polymer expressions that are kind of the same style that I've carried over from Polymer 1 to 2 to 3. But those expressions end up referencing JavaScript Mm -hmm. properties and JavaScript variables, right? Um, Except for that no tooling understands that it does that. So in order to get code completion uh, and syntax highlighting and type checking and stuff, we have to write custom tools all over uh, to get it to be able to understand those expressions. Um, And I just thought that was really unfortunate. you know, it was looking into template literal syntax and the fact that you could have expressions there, and so lit just came out of a need to basically make what was inside those curly braces um, actual JavaScript. Um, and it was kind of an experiment over a couple of days to see if it could work. And actually, the first versions of lit were a thin layer on top of Polymer.
0: And what you actually inspired? Uh, ex- ex- and then, uh, ex- expired? Uh, were you inspired by uh, the um, hype HTML back then, or? Not
1: really, um, you know, Polymer already had a system that basically took expressions and made placeholders inside of a template element and then you know piped the expressions into those placeholders. Um, so you know I was already trying to do that with, with templates and tag template literals there. Um, the one place where um, yeah, I mean, I didn't understand actually that, that hyperH HTML worked that way, because uh, it wasn't quite like obvious in the way it was described. But the one thing we, uh, somebody else who had tried it, you know, gave this tip and said, like, well, tag template literals are actually like uh, non obviously powerful in that um, when you have a template tag function, if it's called multiple times the same template tag function at the same location, um, that the strings that are passed to the function are um, referentially identical. It's the same strings object you get every time. Um, and you can use that as a cache key. So if you have expensive work, like parsing the HTML of a template, you can do that the very first time that you see a template and cache it. And then every other time, either a repeated render or or uh, another instance of that template uh, can be cheap. Um, and so, yeah, somebody who had uh, looked at HyperHTML told me like, oh, tag template literals can do something special here. And then basically, that's all that's needed to go ahead and build this type of system. Because um, the key thing you want is you want to be able to write an expression in the template, but you need to be able to evaluate that expression yeah. over and over again to yeah. get the new values. Um, and so, w- one thing we had actually played with at the time was uh, before we realized tag template literals work that way, we had written expressions as functions, uh, small closures. And that way, the system underneath could take those closures and execute them as many times as they want. And we felt that was ergonomically not the best. But one thing that's really interesting is a new framework that's kind of inspired by LIT has come out by, from Microsoft called okay. FAST. Um, and they actually do it that way.
0: And they even have, um, I think, fa- FAST components, Your, your expression. Right? There is FAST and there is FAST components. They have own FAST web components, right? This, uh... it is it
1: this? It is. I think there's three parts mm-hmm. to FAST. Um, I think there's a... Um, there's mm-hmm. like a templating library, a base class, and a yeah, component exactly. set. I, I, I think that's, I took a look yeah. at the component set, so but they were not this, as
0: vanilla as, let's say, Vardin, where you can just use them. There was more a part of a larger framework, looks to me. So it was not like as easy as, you know, just load it as an ES6 and just use it. So it, some tooling were required last time I saw it.
1: I don't know i I thought they were distributed as pretty uh standard javascript modules um they are implementing Microsoft's design system i I can never remember if it's a fluid or fabric um the name of it but uh, i I do think that they have an interesting theme system in there where um uh, there's some kind of provider system that maybe acts like react context or something where um uh, you can actually pretty significantly change the theme of all the components in a subtree. Um, so they might ship with a very uh, kind of Microsoft yeah. design system what look and I feel out of the do, box. You know, it but it I think we
0: roll up and see what happens. And it didn't work, t- and that's okay then. Uh, 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 okay. It, 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 it tried with SA, ui 5 and Vardin and they just work out of the box. And, and this one was a little bit heavier, so I would have to reevaluate this again. Um, but um, I saw the keynote. I think it was Google I/O where uh, Lit HTML was announced, and um, uh, and I remember it fit in one page on one slide. So there was like you know, they, uh, were you on? The, I don't know whether you uh, you also attended the keynote, but uh, I don't know who it was, but uh, you, you saw the entire source code of Lit HTML on one slide, and they mentioned this ES6 literal, and this is what I thought. This is incredible because the problem in enterprises, you know, the dependency on a framework. So usually every 2 years you have to migrate and uh, you know uh, if the if you have a large company the problem is there's is no budget to migrate or there, it is really hard to find you know budget to keep the f- the framework up and running and the framework is usually not the problem the build system if you wait too long the build system is out of date and you cannot build Anything you know to release, but with LitHTML, I say, look, if this fits on a slide and we find an error, we were properly even capable to fix the error. You know, this is not like it's a magic. And this is where I started with LitHTML, and it worked ex- actually better and better over the years. And uh, now I have to say, feedback to you, it's hyper productive with LitHTML. It's incredible what you can achieve with that. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm really happy with it. Um, you know, when I get a chance to actually use it. Uh, and write components and apps. Um, it, it feels very nice. Yeah, I think that was a slide I had made. The uh, huh? you know uh, at the time, LitHTML was about two k in size. we have added more features, so uh, I think it's uh, close to three k now. But I'm sure with a couple of font yeah. size adjustments, we could get yeah, in a more resolution slide. right
0: now. We Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, and speaking speaking of LitHTML and the size and everything, so currently we're working on the next mm-hmm. major versions of both LitHTML and LitElement. Um, and so we're we're doing a lot to make it smaller still um, and make it faster again and, and even add some new features on top of that. Um, so. so yeah it, it has it has worked really well. I mean it, it we announced it in 2017 and so this is our first breaking change mm-hmm. that we're doing. Um and it's not even a very big breaking change. What will happen? Uh, so what I would should be asking. um so for most people for lit.html, HTML there should be very few breaking changes in some details of things. Um, maybe the way arrays are handled in attributes, or if for some reason you're passing symbols okay. to an expression, uh, you know, that won't work the same. So there's a couple of very small differences. Uh, the big changes are that we're dropping a lot of the customizability of it. Uh, in some ways, HTML 1.0 is a template system construction set. Because you can write your own template processors and template factories and really customize the syntax and do all kinds of stuff. Um, But we found that that abstraction was costing code size and a little bit of perf, uh, and very few people were using it. Um, And it also kind of got in the way of SSR, in that when we're doing SSR and hydration, we have to assume a certain structure to the bindings. And if you did something wild in your template processor, it wouldn't work. So for all those reasons, we decided to just remove the abstraction and simplify uh, oh, do the core.
0: The HTML and render and all the handlers at click and so forth and the syntax is the same? Oh, there's all no of that is the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have
1: this, yeah, we have the same directives, the same syntax. Um, you know, Almost all the value types mm-hmm. behave the same way. Um, so for most people, it probably won't even be a breaking change mm-hmm. at that level. Um, if if you've written your own directives, the directive API has changed, um, and I think it's going to be a simple upgrade. Um, and the new directive API plays with SSR uh, a lot better, so uh, most directives should just kind of transparently work in SSR with the new API. Um, and then LitElement has a few small changes as well. Uh, one of the big changes is we're changing how we support uh, Internet Explorer. So uh, for Internet Explorer, we have the Web Components polyfills. Um, And then we have the core libraries. And there's this kind of bridge between the libraries and Uh and the polyfills. So that for CSS scoping and for Shadow DOM, that we can kind of call into the polyfills to make them work. Um, And that bridge was always bundled in with the core libraries. And so what we're doing in the next version is we're making that bridge a separate Uh file. Um, So by default, we won't support IE. Um and if you wanna support IE, you gotta load this separate we call it a platform support. You mean file. the old IE, right? And if I you mean do, not
0: the yeah. uh, the IE based on Chromium rather than, you know, the I I,
1: I... Well when I say IE I yeah, I refer to like not edge, yeah, okay. but you know, actual yeah, well, internet explorer. Anyway, yeah. I would say. Um we still have a lot of customers who need so to support.
0: In Huge customers, we didn't ship any polyfills. We just ignored the Internet Explorer and the business department were fine with it. So, this was uh, interesting. So, this is we'll just feedback to you. So, we, we shipped actually vanilla ES6 without any transpilations and uh, it just worked. Yeah. That is awesome. I mean, uh,
1: I think our next breaking change after this one, I hope we can finally drop IE support. But, you know, we have customers who themselves have customers mm-hmm. where they're contractually obligated to mm-hmm. support IE. Um, you know, especially people who support uh, government yeah, yeah, yeah. and healthcare, mm-hmm. you know, they'll have these contracts that, you know, and so they don't, they don't really have a choice. And we figured out a new solution that hopefully makes it um, no impact mm-hmm. on modern browsers. They're never loading the code to support IE, um, but still supports IE if you, if you know how to set it up correctly. And so we think that's a pretty good
0: uh, medium ground. Actually regarding uh, lit element. So I'm using straight lit HTML. I never saw you know, the added value of lit element for me. So, what is you though, know, the killer feature of using lit element over just plain lit HTML for you?
1: So, lit element is really based on this, this base class that sits directly under it that's currently called updating mm-hmm. element, and, and we're renaming it to reactive element. Um, and what that base class does is it gives you a kind of richer lifecycle than what web components mm-hmm. have out of the box. Um, so, it gives you this update lifecycle where it will batch changes that come in, and then kind of render those changes to the DOM um, all together at once. Um, And so it gives you uh, reactive properties. Um, So when you declare these reactive properties, it will create getters and setters, and the setter will trigger the update lifecycle. And it does the batching. Um, And then it also does like reflecting to attributes for you and a couple of things. But it's mostly around this reactive lifecycle and these reactive properties. Um. So, LitElement basically takes that and um, bridges it with LitHTML and it says, okay, what we're going to do when there is an update is re render the template you get. What, it.
0: what I do, what currently in various projects, also in larger projects, actually in one huge project, we are always combining LitHTML with Redux or Redux Toolkit. And uh, what happens there is uh, that we have a base class, which is probably. Fifty lines of code, JavaScript code, no more. And this um, this uh, class subscribes to the Redux store, you know, uh, store subscribe, and every change just renders the view. And because the uh, uh, Lit HTML yeah. detects, you know, the changes, it is very fast and very simple. So this is so on every change, all the components gets re-rendered, and this is the way you know the architecture is working. And right now, it was very simple, very s- simple, no problem so far, and uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, this is the thing I like about lit HTML and lit element being these pieces yeah. that connect together in that way is that if you have some other way to get your data changes into your element, um, and then you have some defined point where you can call the lit HTML render, um, you can do that. And, you know, you were talking before about needing to switch frameworks a lot. Um, a huge part of our philosophy these days is having a very low lock-in. Um so that goes both to you know web components in general is that you know you should be able to mix and match web components yeah. from different libraries. Um, that decreases lock-in. It goes to our tooling story. We really just want to be plain JavaScript yeah. as much as possible, um, so that you're not locked into a very specific tool chain. Um, and it also goes to the library source code themselves. Like one of the advantages of having these libraries be separable and also having them be small is that um, yeah you can use them HTML without the element yeah. if you want you could use Reactive Element without Lit mm-hmm. HTML. They're also small enough that you can get in and fix bugs and contribute if you want. Or if we were falling behind and not doing our responsibility with maintaining the libraries, you could fork them or write from scratch your own yeah. code that does something yep. very similar. So I think that's a, that's a huge thing for a lot of customers. Uh, is, you know, maybe they don't want to maintain a library like LitElement, but as long as they feel like they yeah. could, that gives them a lot of security in 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 terms of thinking yeah, about and the future.
0: Easy to explain, you know. There's not lots of uh, you know transpilation and, and magic going on. So this is like you know basically you can start to explain. There are two functions, HTML and render, and this is what happens, and everything else you know builds on top of that, which is. Great, actually, this is—I would say—almost a Java approach. You know, it's completely different to usual, uh, you know, JavaScript frameworks where you have code generators and transpilers and some stuff. Would I would argue, really, no one understands anymore in the in the um, entirety. Um, another thing I, I I heard a lot and never understood because I do the opposite is that the web components are actually not suitable to build applications with them because they are too coarse grained. Uh, to fine grade. So the components are built for visual elements. And um, and what I do actually with web components all the time, I use web components to structure the application. So um, I use a web component like navigation, view, header, footer, even router as a component. And inside the you know the top level components, I have my finer components, and sometimes I have my not button, but let's say a, a smaller parts. But usually I start with coarse grained, uh, big components, which I name you know just by views, and this is the entire structure of the application. So what's your take on it? So you also see this, you know, the race of components uh, to structure applications, because I don't understand why I need still a framework, because uh, we, if you do this this way. It is very simple, and I did it a lot. I just in those at conferences or even my clients, Swing Java developers. I don't know whether they remember Swing or AWT. I showed them you know this JavaScript. JavaScript yeah, yeah. was lit HTML, and they got it with you no know, grid layout. We have the CSS grid yeah. with, combined with that, and everyone was on my side. This is this is actually great. The first time we understand, we you know what's going on.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, I've given talks about this, so I definitely agree that you don't need a framework. Um, but it is interesting to kind of break down what people mean by that when they say you need a framework uh and what they imagine is lacking um from the web components kind of oriented system. And I think usually what it comes down to um is kind of element coordination or component coordination. Um that some people see the framework as, as having this role of you know passing data between components or uh you know creating uh communication channels you know across component trees um you know or uh like you said routing or um like what are some other things that they you know uh partial rendering asynchronous rendering you know things like this uh optimizing you know uh, what parts get rendered and it turns out really that you can do all of this stuff without um yeah. without a framework like with lit HTML and lit Element, what we do is we pass properties yeah. down a tree. So a parent component will sign property on a child, and then the child will react to that chaining uh, changing and re-render if necessary. And so that gives you your downward data flow. And it's not tied to any framework. Any web component that has a setter for a property will just work. Um and lit HTML shows how your template system can set that property, and there's other template systems that can do that too. Um in terms of cross uh cross tree coordination. Um, it's quite easy to use DOM events yeah. to communicate back up the tree that some user event has happened, or that you need to, uh, you know, provide or fetch some data. Um, routing is very easy to do. Um, you know, I tend to do routing still in the JavaScript layer, but you basically are deserializing the URL into some data, and then you feed that data back down the tree. Uh, state management is quite easy to do with yeah. you know Redux or fun, MobX. Fun,
0: funny fact, funny fact. So um, with the uh, with the router, um, I started with a mobile app. So it should, you know, mimic, you know, the native experience. And I used the Vadin router, which is great, which is based on web components. And the the, whole, the big deal of routers, you know, having readable URL, URLs. And what I thought, I saw the app, there is not even visible, you know, because if you have a native app on a mobile phone, so there is no URL which is visible. So it shouldn't be visible. I used, you know, the manifest to install the app. So I ditched the router. And I just load okay. the components by by their name. So what you can do is you just replace a DOM event, and uh, if the component disappears, you know, disconnected callback is called. If it comes, it's connected callback. So you don't even need a router for 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 mobile apps. So routers are more interesting if you would like to have readable URLs for for websites. But for mobile applications, in in a full screen mode, you don't even see the URL, right?
1: Yeah, and so I think another category of things comes down to the difficulties with the shadow DOM mm-hmm. styling, uh, is that some people are still trying to style the app at the top level with a single style sheet, um, and that's generally solved by showing people how they can load style sheets um, and share them across components and load them into their shadow DOM in multiple components, and then what you have is a style sheet that a bunch of components load in, and now you have application styling, um, and then and then a the last category of kind of coordination, you know. Um, is that there are some things that, if you want to communicate across components, you need some kind of convention for. Um, A good example of this would be if you want to do something like suspense with React, where uh, if you you want to let some subtree uh, render asynchronously and kind of notify when it's done. Um, And you can do this with events. Uh, You can have a subtree fire an event that says it has some pending work to do, and it will fire another event or, or resolve a promise when it's done. And if you have this convention around this pattern here, you can have components that you know uh, don't show a subtree as it's rendering and show a spinner instead and do all the coordinated kind of things that, that the React suspense demos have shown. And um, yeah, so one thing we're trying to do to address that is that you know it's all possible, but you need this convention. So we're starting up a repository uh, in the Web Components GitHub org to store just documentation of these conventions. And so hopefully the idea will be that multiple components and multiple Web Component libraries um, can implement these same conventions, uh, these little micro specs, in a way uh, to replace some of the coordination uh, functionality that you would get. From, so you
0: also see, you know, the uptake of vanilla web standards apps because um, I'm, so, I'm largely involved in, in, you know, in enterprise projects, bigger companies, and this is um, this is obvious. You know, this is a obvious how to call it, trend because they get they really would like to get rid of all, all possible frameworks because you know of the dependencies and um and with that i would say if you use web components and combine them with lit html it really looks like react right so um this is this is uh, yeah. i mean from a productivity perspective this is not a huge difference. You can even apply, you know, the same the same patterns from React to web components with Little HTML. So um, even how to structure Redux, how to slice it, how to deal with forms and validations, for me it looks almost the same. So um I, I would expect, you know, twenty twenty one or one year later a bigger trend towards back, you know, back to the roots, how how web, you know, started twenty years ago without any any built tools and compilers or whatever, right?
1: Yeah, I mean I I I vary myself in the you know how dogmatic i am uh about these types of things and and right now my read on the situation is that like i think there are a lot of people who want to be more vanilla and and they can right now um but there's not like a single place that kind of tells you how to do this right so that's one thing kind of a framework gives you is they can like um you know give you the recommended structure and all the documentation in one place and tutorials and starter kits and really um you know an ecosystem of people who view things the same way uh, vanilla is a little different because you don't necessarily have that so you know I think we're entering a phase where people can choose to be completely vanilla if they want to um, but for a lot of other people I think maybe it should be basically like maybe they should prefer being vanilla where it's pragmatic for the time being right and you know ideally choose to work with projects that are kind of aiming towards a future where things are less proprietary uh, and more kind of built into yeah. the platform. Which will mean that we can, you know, we can use some roll-up transforms now. We can use some fancy, you know, dev server build thing for the moment. But what we're aiming for is a situation where, um, you know, these features that people need to be productive end up being in the platform, and then they have less lock in yeah, over time.
0: You, you said you know dogmatic, but uh, from, from from I mean, not even dogmatic. If, if you think about that, the browser understands JavaScript and HTML. So, if you start learning you know web it just with JavaScript and HTML, this is what browser understands and if this works well, there is no, no reason to to take you know to pick a framework. I would say what could remain a framework as a set of patterns naming conventions and styles you know like a community more uh, you know we can go the web standards vanilla route, and there is no this reactive way of doing things and component base of doing things and maybe you know whatever, so like uh, just the uh, communities but there will be less and less, you know, the the, the usage of or, or the need to have a framework, right?
1: Uh, less and less over time. Yeah, I mean, I think the the key for me though is not being so extreme one way or the other that you cause difficulties in, in the present. Like, uh, uh, to give a concrete example, um, you know, the browsers support loading JavaScript modules right now, right? So you're like, great, we could send JavaScript modules to the browser, um, but there are a lot of uh kind of downsides. To that. I mean, the first thing that you hit is that browsers don't support bare module specifiers. So you can't just like import Lodash, right? You have to import a URL. It has to start with a dot slash or something like that. Um, so when we published our JavaScript modules, uh, you know, we had a big debate on the team about how to do this, but we ended up saying, okay, even though those browsers don't support it right now, we're going to publish bare module specifiers in some of our imports. So like lit element imports lit HTML just by saying import quote litHTML. And that requires that you build the little modules before the browser system. Uh, and you can do this very cheaply with a dev server that just knows how to do node module resolution, but it does require some build step. It is something the browser doesn't support. But we felt that that was such a productivity gain to be compatible with the entire tool ecosystem uh, in node that that was an acceptable trade-off for the time being. And then in the future, which is actually the present now, I think the next version of Chrome is shipping with uh, import okay. maps. And import maps let the browser know how to deal with these bare module specifiers. So that's the kind of thing I'm talking about, where you know uh, you want to lean towards uh, no required tooling, no required framework. But in a case where it's really pragmatic and there's just no other great option, you know, go ahead and try to choose uh, something that requires some tooling or something. Uh, but in the future, won't. Um, I think CSS modules are another great example of this. Um, it is very important for people out there to have their components and their JavaScript libraries be able to load CSS, and the platform doesn't have a great solution for that. Um, so what we've tried to do with LitElement is plan for a future with CSS modules um, and be able to support the, you know, the thing that you import from a CSS module like, this already. It's more like
0: you know, ut- ut- utility, not for me a framework. It's more like you know, you are not using the plain standards everywhere, you are very pragmatic. You can, I don't use Node.js imports. I use my bare imports in this particular case. But it's not like you are inventing, you know, a new language, new framework or whatever. So it's more in your library, you are picking and choosing uh, things which are proprietary but may disappear in the future. By the way, this was the, the, the whole, the entire idea of Polymer, right? So the framework started as a framework, but should, you know, be, uh, should, should uh, how to call it, disappear, you know, over time and be replaced by standards.
1: Yeah, I mean uh, that. Yeah, definitely. And, but I would say like Polymer was never yeah. a framework because the, the the framework is the thing that instantiates the components that hosts the components. And even in Polymer, even though it was a little more heavy weight than a Lit element, um, it it never was the component host. The browser was the component host. Um, but yeah, Polymer definitely had an idea that um, you know some of the aspects in it, like the template syntax, um, might go into the browser one day. And there were even kind of proposals and prototype implementations like there was this thing called m d v model driven views um and the, the the template system might might be in the browser um yeah again, I think that's that's like I'm somewhere in the middle on this now. I'm not sure um if we'll ever have enough consensus to get everything that's say in lit element and HTML, like into the browser, like hopefully we'll have native decorators at some point, and maybe once we do the browsers will have some decorators to help you reflect attributes. Uh, maybe we'll get the template instantiation proposal, and the idea of recording dynamic parts inside of DOM that can be updated will be in the, in the browser. I'm not sure we'll ever have anything like HTML backdips mm-hmm. in the browser. I, I don't know if there would ever be enough consensus for that. So, I you know I think the key is getting the platform to the point where it's, it's cheap and easy to build the little sugar layer on top that makes the developer experience
0: yeah really but great. uh lit html right now i mean there's basically two functions which are well integrated with the java standard it's not like a hack or a pre whatever just know uh basically html is the es6 literal which is like a hook to the to the standard javascript ecosystem which is not a big deal i would say this is already a standard way to extend javascript right no it's
1: it's it's great i mean it's small and fast it's If things didn't progress further than this, it would not be the end of the world. Um, But lit HTML still does uh, some runtime template processing the first time it sees a template. It it parses that template string a little bit to figure out what kind of marker to insert, and it inserts these markers. And um, It definitely does some stuff that would be nice if uh, primitives for that were built into the platform, and then lit HTML could be even smaller and faster. And more importantly, that means that... uh, if if somebody was using Lit HTML and somebody else was using Fast and somebody else was using Stencil, um, the more those libraries can shrink, the less overhead there is yeah. for using multiple libraries on a page. Um, and I think that's that's going to be important to get to too. Once we have a, a you know this rich ecosystem of components that you want to pick and choose, you don't want to have to limit the component you pick by what library mm-hmm. it was built with. And uh,
0: Lit, H, lit uh, yeah. HTML and Lit Element are actually also used inside Google, right? It's not yeah okay. quite a bit so yeah quite popular and and then and uh, i mean really popular or no just a few departments over i mean
1: uh somewhere somewhere in between i mean it's not nearly as popular uh you know as as angular internally um I would say um you know a lot of stuff got built on po- mm-hmm. polymer um uh and so polymer might actually still have more kind of absolute raw usage. Um, than LitElement, but the growth curve for LitElement um, internally looks really good right now, um, and especially the satisfaction yeah. of the developers using it. So um, we're seeing a lot of people pick it up for new projects and a lot of people converting their Polymer over to it. Um, you know, uh, Chrome still has a, um, a, a lot of usage of this stuff in, um, well, I shouldn't say still, I mean, like the Chrome OS, a lot of Chrome OS apps that are shipping with the operating system are being built uh, with Web Element, um, Chrome Dev Tools is being um, uh, built with HTML. Somewhat, I mean, so there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, I think uh, one way we know that we have something that's good here is that when people try it, yeah, they right. want to use it more. Um, they don't. They don't want to give it up. So, yeah, we're seeing really, really good growth, and we're also trying to figure out ways that we can break down these silos within internal Google frameworks. Um, that's that's our mission with Web Components. So we're trying to. Uh, think long term and see how we can make that happen between the Google so
0: even, frameworks. No, even Java developers well. like me like Lit So thank you for your time. So where people can find you and Lit HTML? Yeah, on, exactly. on, on 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 the internet. So,
1: well, um, probably the the best places are the websites and the Polymer Twitter handle. So at Polymer. Uh, so we're the team. You know, we don't just make the Polymer library. We also make uh, all the Lit libraries. Um, and then lithtml.polymer-project.org, mm-hmm. uh, probably just easiest to search for lithtml. Um, that's our website there, and there's a separate website for uh, lit-element. Uh, and then we have a Polymer community um, Slack channel that a lot of people hang out on. Uh, and you can find that on the websites there. There's a link mm-hmm. to join. And, and
0: you, you have also um, a, a Twitter yeah. account, so mm-hmm.
1: right? Yes, I do. Justin Finiani is my Twitter handle. Um, it is probably like 95% uh, politics okay. these days. So I'll give everybody a fair warning. <laughs> I do tweet tech stuff, um, but if you want politics free, go for, go for uh, the call. Yeah, thank you accounts.
0: a lot. I really enjoyed you know, the conversation about you know how, how lit HTML happened actually.
1: Yeah, me too. Thanks for having me.